let me just open us in prayer, because whenever I speak, I'm in need of a lot of prayer. God, thank you for your word, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you're here as we are gathered uh, to worship you, Father, and uh, the words coming out of my mouth, I pray that they come out in a way that is uh, gracious and that is understood and not misunderstood. And so, Holy Spirit, would you help to make those words receivable? And may your heart be shown, may your love be shown, may your grace and mercies be shown. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to talk a little bit about theology this evening, and so don't fall asleep, hopefully. Uh, in chapters uh, 1 and 2 of Galatians, Paul established his authority as an apostle. Now in chapter 3, Paul moves from establishing his apostolic authority to uh, establishing Christian theology. And so what we'll find in chapters 3 and 4 in the next uh, couple of weeks is essentially the heart of Galatians and, and the heart of Paul's message to the Galatian churches. Now if you're just checking Christianity out or if this Christianity thing is relatively new for you, I may have already lost you with terms like apostle or apostolic authority or theology. And not to worry because thank God for technology because if you want to learn more about apostolic authority and apostleship and those things, we covered those messages a couple of weeks ago. So just look back on our iTunes and pull those up. And so tonight we're going to talk about theology. And so no worries there. We'll talk about theology. So essentially theology is the study of God which for some of you, you can be thinking like, what in the world? That is just so overwhelming because how can we study someone who is so great as God, who's infinite in knowledge and infinite in power and infinite in presence and infinite in goodness? How is that possible? Well, we recognize that our minds are finite and in, in using our finite minds, we have been gifted by God with some pretty awesome tools such as logic and reasoning and language. So we're going to use these tools to give us those kind of faculties when looking at the Bible and applying those tools when we're studying scriptures, uh, which is theology. Reading the Bible, thinking it through, logically reasoning what's in the text, and that's what we do in theology. So today or tonight we have Paul's ever so pleasant to greet the Galatians here in verse 1. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Good evening to you too, Paul. Oh foolish Galatians. Paul confronted their logic and their reasoning. That's what he was doing here. And not that they didn't have it, but they weren't using it. And Paul wanted them to think, to use their minds. But rather than thinking and growing in their theology, it seemed that they were more consumed with experiences, more consumed with just life, more consumed with how the world was thinking and their influences around them and how they were pressuring them. And Paul wanted them to be grounded in theology so that they wouldn't be led astray with other spiritual experiences or other spiritual teachings. Our theology grounds us in our spiritual experiences. Theology gives us the why to what we are doing, and it gives us the reasons to what we experience. It explains what's happening. See, our faith has reasonable and sensible dimensions to it, 
There are elements of mystery to it as well, but it's obvious that Paul didn't check his brain in at the road of Damascus when Jesus kind of made himself known to him there. Right? Paul had this brilliant mind, and he used it in following God. And as Christians, we don't check our brain in after we come to faith. Actually, we become a little bit more active in its engagement. Right? We, we need to grow in our understanding and our knowledge of God in His Word, in the Gospel. And when we stop thinking, when we stop seeking understanding and stop growing in knowledge, we risk getting fooled, we risk getting deceived, we risk being misled. And that's why Paul asked them, who has bewitched you? In other words, man, you guys got duped. Now, why would Paul use a word like bewitched? Isn't that some like show in the 70s or 80s or something? It's not because Paul was speaking in the King James or something, right? Like, oh, who has bewitched you? Like, there's a reason. There's a reason that Paul used that particular word in his letter to the Galatian churches. And that reason is this. Bewitched, back in, in the context where Paul was writing, it meant to bring evil on someone by an evil eye. So in that period, and all historians agree upon this, whether secular or religious, whether Judeo-Christian or whatever, they agree on this, that there was this superstition at the time in the area regarding the evil eye, and it's still there. It's still there. And it was a popular belief that someone could vex you, they could curse you with an evil eye. Just giving you the evil eye. And while they're cursing you, they could put that curse upon you. They can vex you with that. And, and so that's where we get this term, evil eye. right? When someone gives you the evil eye. And so back in that time, this superstition of the evil eye caused people to include it in their everyday speech. right? So they'd say things like, oh, without an evil eye. Or they'd say things, no evil eye, especially when they're talking about, you know, things of good fortune or their children or things like that. And it would be the equivalent of what we do today, right? So we're talking about just a family member. And so I have kids, right? So I'm talking about my kids and I'm like, oh yeah, they're doing so well in school and, and their health is so good, I'll knock on wood. Right? We use terms like that. So this is the same thing. It's kind of like a knock on wood thing, but it's about the evil eye. And so I say it's happening there today too, the superstition, because if you go throughout the Middle East today, especially in like Turkey and that area there, you'll see that they have these kind of charms that are like the eye and they're like blue and then they're white there. And they make earrings out of them and they make amulets out of them and they have all sorts of things and you can hang them on the door and they're these eyes. There's, they're the evil eyes. And so... They put them up because if someone is giving you the evil eye, well, I have my earrings and I have my charm, evil eye back at you. Like, <laughs> evil eye me. <laughs> right? So it's like, don't you look at me with disgust and anger and cursing and vexing because, <laughs> like, I'll show you my, I'll just show you everything, the evil eye. Like, right? And so they have all these charms, right? And so Paul used this cultural context to write to the Galatian churches, who has bewitched you? I mean, who's giving you the evil eye? Who's giving you the stink eye? Right? Who's doing that? And so in Oaklandish terms, it's more like, who's mad dogging you? Like, who's that? Right? Who's doing that? Now, why would Paul bring this up? Because it wasn't that long ago that Paul shared the gospel with them, and they faithfully believed in it. And this sh relatively short time passes by, and then they're fooled into believing this false gospel. And so Paul wrote in the latter part of verse 1, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Jesus Christ 
crucified was openly shown to you. It couldn't be missed. It is so obvious and clear because you can even find people during that time that were still alive that would have been eyewitnesses to the crucifixion. And it was so clear that it happened because it was publicly portrayed. No one's going to say that it didn't happen. It happened. And so Paul reminded them what the gospel was all about. Christ crucified. Jesus Christ crucified. There's no gospel without the cross. There's no resurrection. There's no ascension. If there's no death for our sins that Jesus bore on his body on the cross, there is no Savior. So Paul reminded them about the importance of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, some of us have embraced the truth of the gospel. We accept the gospel in that we believe that we are justified through faith, by faith in Jesus Christ, nothing else. Well, it was the same for the early church in that there were some who believed in the truth of the gospel, just like Paul, but then there were some who believed that there was something more than just simple faith in Jesus, that there was something more that had to be done in order to receive salvation. And for the circumcision party, it was circumcision, as well as their other rules and laws and traditions and regulations and all that kind of stuff that had to be followed. And some of us may encounter people who believe that same thing nowadays, that, oh, no, it's not the way of faith. You have to have this certain life, and you have to stop smoking and stop drinking and stop doing this and stop doing that. You have to do all these types of things. And so Paul confronted this belief because it was false. And he challenged the Galatian churches with this series of questions to have them think through their faith. And so he asked them just these basic rhetorical questions just to kind of like, wake up, guys, wake up. Wake up from this false belief. And so verse 2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So Paul laid out plainly for them and he started out with this foundational question that would help them determine the rest of their beliefs regarding faiths and works. And essentially the question is this. How did you become a Christian? How did you become a Christian? Now, Did you become a Christian because you observed these laws and the rules and the regulations and customs and traditions by following the law? That's how you became a follower of Jesus? Obviously not. These guys weren't Jews. These are Gentiles. They wouldn't just follow that law. Or, he says, was it because you heard the gospel and you believed it by simple faith? Yes. That's what it was. They heard the gospel and they believed it. And so obviously it was hearing with faith. Now notice that Paul recognized a necessary relationship with the Holy Spirit in verse 2. Paul also wrote the book of Romans, and in Romans chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, Paul wrote this. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. We don't receive the Spirit, by our works. It is by faith. Now back to Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. Here Paul pointed out their foolishness in believing that it was anything in addition to just faith. Verse 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You came into relationship with Jesus with a childlike faith. It wasn't anything that you did. The relationship began by the Spirit. So how can you be so arrogant to believe that what began in the Spirit can be carried through in the flesh? By your doing. 
And so this is what Paul is confronting them with. From beginning to end, our relationship with Jesus is miraculous. It is supernatural. Without him, we have nothing. There is no beginning without Jesus. There is no everlasting life without Jesus. And when we allow this arrogance to sneak in us, believing that we can earn our way into a right relationship with God, that there's something that we can actually do to earn something like that, we're fooling ourselves. We're fooling ourselves. And Paul continued questioning. Verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed, it was in vain. And some of these early believers did indeed suffer. As you think about this, you know, some of these people lost loved ones because they weren't accepted in their families anymore because of this newfound faith. Friendships were broken. Relationships were severed with people that they cared about. Jobs that they used to have, they were lost because employers were like, you became one of Get out. Right? And so they were negatively talked about. They were given the evil eye. Marginalized because of this newfound faith. So was all that suffering that you had to go through because you did that? You masochist. Like, why would you do that to yourself? If it's your own work, why would you do that to yourself? Right? That makes no sense because if you did do that, that is done in vain. You did that in vain. Or was because the suffering you did was because you believed in the truth of the gospel. And if it was that, if that was that faith, that's not in vain. That's truth. And perhaps this is something for us to consider because some of us may be having a difficult time living a life of faith, living as though we think that we can earn a right standing with God. And you're just on this treadmill that just never stops if you're really believing that. Because you can never do enough. Verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is interesting. Verse 5's question is pretty similar to verse 2's if you kind of look at those side by side. Difference is is in that verse 2, it's in relation to the receiver of the Spirit, right? So the Galatian believers, or you and me, as receivers of this word. While in verse 5, it's in relation to the giver of the Spirit. It's in relation to God, right? Verse 2, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The answer is by hearing with faith. And then verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Same answer. Just kind of a different way to look at it, but it's by hearing with faith. And so any way we look at this, whether from the perspective of a receiver or the perspective of the giver, it's by hearing with faith. It's the same answer. And that's the truth of the gospel. It was nothing more than hearing the gospel, believing it by faith, and then the Spirit was given. Not because of circumcision or any other work. It is by faith alone. And verses 2 through 5 were Paul's way of logically reasoning with them how they were being deceived, how they were misled. And after this series of questions, Paul moved on to point out the patriarch of their faith, Abraham, a man known for his faith in verses 6 through 9. Now, why did Paul point out Abraham? Well, when a Jew or a Christian thought about someone of faith, they would instantly think back to Abraham. Paul pointed out to them faith because these Judaizers, the circumcision party, they were pointing to the law and they were pointing to Moses. 
And while they were pointing to Moses, Paul wanted to remind them, you know, there's someone that came before Moses, Abraham. That there was faith before there was the law. There's this father of faith, and his name is Abraham. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now keep in mind, Abraham was in his 80s. So for decades, he and his wife Sarah were not able to have children. And this is well into his life, and Sarah is well beyond those childbearing years. And God told him he was going to have not one, children, right? Like many. And so he's thinking like, whoa, that's impossible, right? That, no way. That his offspring was going to number that. And so you can just imagine his wonderment and his amazement. And so he just brought out his abacus and he starts calculating, right? And he's starting to calculate the number of the stars. And no, he doesn't do anything. He didn't do anything. Abraham didn't do anything. What did he do? How did he respond? Verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord. And he counted it, his belief, to him as righteousness. Now look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. Because Paul was just quoting Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. From Abraham's faith, his belief in God, it was counted to him as righteousness. He was in right standing with God. Was Abraham's righteousness counted to him because he was circumcised? No. Because... It wasn't until Genesis chapter 17 that he was circumcised. But this is Genesis 15. He wasn't circumcised until a decade later. That's mean, right? Genesis 17 verse 24. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Ouch. Maybe it was to celebrate his centennial or something. I don't know. Was Abraham's righteousness counted to him because of the law? No, because there was no law. There wouldn't be any law for centuries later, over 400 years later, when Moses would enter into history, and that's when the law was given. It was because of Abraham's belief. It was his faith in God that it was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't anything he did. It wasn't some circumcision thing. It wasn't him following the law. Just as it isn't for the Galatians to do something. Just as it isn't for you or me to do something to gain salvation. Righteousness before a holy God. And so here was Paul probing them to think about how they were thinking. What they were doing. Abraham is the great, 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 great grandfather of the faith 
of faith. If there was anyone to look at in terms of faith, that's the guy. Look at him. Abraham was justified, not because of anything he did, but because he believed God. That was it. That's it. Nothing he did. And he understood that he needed to completely trust his life to God, that he couldn't do anything in terms of having a right relationship with God. And perhaps this is a struggle for some people in their coming to faith in Jesus. Because in our culture, it may be challenging for some to surrender their life to God because in our culture, we have this strong belief that we can achieve anything that we want. So if we want everlasting life, there is something that we can do about it. If we want a right relationship with God, there is something that we can do about it. We can achieve it. We are U.S. of A. We can do it. And so this challenge with our culture and with our mindset, this is compounded with the difficulty to come to Jesus in just simple faith and just say, I can't do it. There's nothing I can do. I just simply have faith in you. And whatever one's beliefs are, you know that there's a faith attached to that belief, right? No matter what one believes, atheism, agnosticism, universalism, Christianity, whatever other religion, philosophy that is out there, whatever, there is a faith attached to that certain belief because there are things within any type of belief that are empirically, scientifically unproven. You cannot perform some experiment to make it Prove over and over again, there has to be an element of faith for that belief. And one needs to have faith to place belief in that. So no matter what the beliefs are that are held by people, faith has to be exercised in it. It has to. Even if you don't believe in anything, your belief in the idea of believing nothing is a belief in itself. It's faith. Right? It's faith. So we all have faith in what we currently believe in. The difference is where, who, what we place our faith in. Is it faith in yourself? Is it faith in the government? Is it faith in Jesus? Is it in faith of world peace? Or whatever that faith is in. But we all have faith and we all exercise it. And the Christian is no different than anyone else when it comes to faith. It's just that our faith is placed in Jesus. And here we have Paul logically reasoning with the Galatians about their misled faith. So in verses 7 through 9, he pointed out that those Judaizers, that circumcision party, they're misleading you. They're deceiving you. In verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. If you are a child of Abraham, right, or a child of faith, then you are practicing spiritual belief you're practicing spiritual trust. You are practicing faith. It's not some external work. It's not some external act like circumcision. What needs to happen is spiritual. It's not external. It's internal. It's a spiritually internal thing. What identifies you as a child of Abraham is faith. It's not something that you did. In verse 8, And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. See, faith wasn't just found in Genesis with Abraham. Faith is found throughout the scripture before Abraham, through the present, into the future, as God would justify us by faith in Jesus. John wrote about this in John chapter 8, starting in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. 
the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than Father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Who said Jesus was always gentle and meek and mild? Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Man, they were fuming. These guys were mad. You talk about evil eye right here. Because these guys were a bunch of just the law-abiding, devout, pious Jews. And they believed Abraham was the father of the faith. Yes, indeed, he's the father of faith. And here's Jesus who claimed to be before Abraham. The father of their faith. And so essentially Jesus was claiming, I'm God. Before Abraham was me. What? And so Paul knew what the scriptures meant when God informed Abraham, in you shall all the nations be blessed. That the gospel will reach the Gentiles. And that was told Abraham. It it would be by faith, not by a birthright like these Jews believed when they were encountering Jesus and John, or or something that was done that would establish their righteousness, like this circumcision party believing that, hey, circumcision is the way to do it. Like, that's the way to get uh, salvation. Verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The blessing accounted to Abraham and those after him, his offspring, was the gracious gift of righteousness, to be put in a right standing with God. That's what righteousness is. And if you have questions about that, you listen to last week's message, righteousness. And that righteousness, that not guilty verdict would be given to us and we would be given the Holy Spirit. And this blessing can't be earned by what anybody does. It's a gift of grace through faith in Jesus. Then Paul moved on to explain the effects of believing the gospel versus believing that there was something necessary beyond faith in Jesus in verses 10 through 14. And he did this by contrasting works of the law to living by faith. Verses 10 and 11. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Relying on works of the law, that is a dead-end road. That's a dead-end. You can be the most moral, the most ethical, the most law-abiding person in the entire world and still be on that road to a dead-end. You can be the most civic-minded person. You can even be the most religious person who goes to church regularly and gives of your time and your money and service and you live such an upright life. But without faith in Jesus, you're still on that dead-end road. 
the only road to righteousness, a right standing before a holy God, is through Jesus. That's what the Bible says. That's what God has provided through his only begotten son. It's through Jesus. There is no other way for justification before a holy God. Not through your good works, not through another belief, only through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, and if we rely on anything but Jesus, we are still under that curse. And the law will prove us unrighteous. Right? These people believed in this evil eye and cursing and vexing. And here Paul is kind of playing on that. You want to talk about a curse. This is an everlasting curse. This is a curse that is going to follow you the rest of your life. And the law will prove us guilty because we've broken it. And it will prove that. And no one can keep it perfectly except for one who did Jesus. Now, some of you may be thinking, you know what? I, I've kept some of the law perfectly. Maybe not all of it, but I've kept some of it. I haven't murdered anybody. Isn't that one of the commandments? You know, thou shalt not murder. That's one of them. I haven't done that. Or maybe some of you who are married and you're thinking, yeah, hey, I, I haven't committed adultery. Isn't that one of the commandments too? I haven't done that. I've been faithful to my wife. And yet Jesus addressed that in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Guilty. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Guilty. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Guilty. I've used much worse words than fool. Guilty. And then, for those of you who are talking about adultery, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. All you guys are guilty. Every single one of you. If you aren't, come talk to me because I, I want to see you. I want to know who you are. I want to get blessed by your presence. You know what? We've all broken the law. We've all broken the law. In a court of law, which we are all going to face one day, right? We're all going to face God face to face one day. That law will condemn us. It will condemn us. We will be proven guilty. There will be a mound of, a mound of evidence that we are guilty. And except by faith that Jesus saved you from that judgment, guilty. There is nothing you and I can do to justify that mound of offenses. Nothing. No amount of times reading the Bible, going to church, worshiping, in song, giving, serving, nothing will justify the sins except for faith in Jesus. Verse 12, but the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. See, living by the law is not faith. That's just legalism. And you are still held accountable to it. So you want to live by it? Go ahead. Try. The thing is, is that no one can live by it and not be found guilty. Because you're going to be found guilty. So even if you choose to uphold the law to the best of your ability, you will be found guilty. But God says, here's the good news. I'm going to give you my only son, who's perfect, who did keep all those laws, and I will accept him in your place. 
the wages of sin is death. So either you pay them or I will allow my son to pay them for you. But there's no other way. You either pay them yourself or my son will pay them for you. That's all I can accept because I am a just God and the wages of sin is death. I am a holy God. I can't just accept anything. I can only accept perfection and that is Jesus. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because the law condemns us. We are guilty of violating the law. Now, you might be thinking, is there any grace in this? I mean, everlasting death for lying? I mean, I'm just a lie. I just like, did I steal candy for Halloween? No. My kids are such sinners. There's a ton of grace. There's a ton of mercy, right? Faith in Jesus will set you free. Jesus redeemed us. He paid for that penalty. He took that curse of sin for us. Now, what is the curse of sin? Death. Death. And Jesus made it possible to receive forgiveness and life. Second part of verse 13. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Hanged on a tree meaning death. The penalty of sin is death, as Paul wrote in Romans. And death is evidence of the curse of sin. And now, we're not just talking about physical death because we're all going to experience that. We're talking about spiritual death, everlasting separation from a holy God. But the cross was where Jesus took that curse of being eternally separated from a holy God and he took that sin upon himself so that we can have a relationship with a holy God. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. See, God is the one who took action. He did something. It's not anything we could do. He did it. It wasn't something that we did to earn our salvation from sins. It says, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham came to us so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Through faith. The blessing of a right standing, a not guilty sentence with God came to us in Jesus through faith in Jesus Christ. He came to us. It wasn't anything that we were trying to get to him. He came to us, giving us the blessing of righteousness to receive through faith in him. That is such good news that you and I didn't have to go do something. He came to us. That's the gospel. He came to us. And when we come to faith in that, in Jesus, we will receive the Holy Spirit. See, it's not something that you do to earn a right standing with God. We can't do anything. I mean, what can you possibly do? It's faith in Jesus. Jesus came to us so that through faith in him, we are given this path to forgiveness, this path to life, no longer a road to darkness and death. And so the question for you this evening, which road are you on? Road to life, road to death? Because if you have not received through faith in Jesus this road to life, this road to forgiveness, this right standing with a holy God, you're on the road to darkness. You're on the road to death. Let me close with this parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. 
He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Did you catch that? Those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So Jesus has this illustration where it's this one guy, this Pharisee, who trusted in himself that he was righteous, and then the other who knew that he was not righteous. Okay? That's the picture. Verse 11, The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. That's so much like us, isn't it? We just love comparing. Like, I'm bad, but I'm not bad as that guy. Yeah, I, I sin, but not like that. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So here we have this religious guy attempting to justify himself before God. And right here we have an example of a religious person who does that, and us religious people, we do this all the time. We're guilty of that. But it's not just religious people that do this. The whole world does this. Right? The whole world believes they can justify themselves that they are righteous. Right? Many people of the world believe that they can justify themselves. They say, I'm good. I do this. I serve here. I donate here. I give this amount of money. I give this many hours. I'm honest. I don't cheat on taxes. I, whatever. They, they have this whole list of things that they do, thinking that that earns righteousness or a right standing with God. And the parable continues. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God... Be merciful to me, a sinner. It's just by faith. It's just by belief. He's not justifying himself at all. He's not that arrogant. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, we can't justify ourselves. Can you imagine our pride if we could? Our heads wouldn't be able to fit in this sanctuary. We'd be so big-headed, right? We'd be like, oh, this is coming like a big old bobblehead. Like, oh, check me out, everything that I've done, and how I serve my community, and how I love people, and all this stuff. We'd be bumping each other. And then you start judging other people. Hey, look, his head's not as big as mine. <laughs> look at that. See, no worries at all about anything because Jesus did it all. He did it all. We all have tiny heads. And it's his road. And only his road leads to a right standing with God. Place your faith in Jesus and trust what he did for you on the cross. And you'll be on that road. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy in providing your only son to us. Which would be the only worthy substitute for the penalty of sin. Father, we are sinners. There's no way about it. The law will prove us guilty. I mean, we can't even keep straight man's laws, let alone the laws that are of you, God. So how can we be so arrogant to say that we can keep the law when we can't even keep the speed limit? So Father, we are indeed guilty of sin. Thank you so much for providing a way that we can have a right standing with you, holy God. 
And I pray, Lord, this evening for anyone who does not have that right standing with you this evening, Lord. May you shower them with your grace. May your spirit continue to knock on their heart. May they open up their heart to you by faith and receive you this evening. God, you're a God of love. And we apologize, Lord, because as a church, we're hypocrites, just as Paul wrote about Peter. And sometimes we misguide people and we mislead people and we don't even want to do that, but it happens because we are fallen people. And so, Lord, may people not look to us, may they look to you because you are perfect and you are a God of grace. God, we're humbled that you've chosen us to be here to serve in this community. And Lord, we desire this community to be transformed for your glory. So much is wrong here, but yet so much is right also. And Father, we need your presence here. In Jesus' name.